Welcome to the Health Trip Podcast. My name is Jill Foos. I'm a functional medicine and integrative nutrition health coach. I created this podcast to bring you along as we travel down intriguing science-packed roads, debunking old medical paradigms and perusing new innovative therapies and modalities with the finest functional medicine doctors, practitioners, and like-minded biohackers while living our best life. Enjoy the show. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Health Trip Podcast. October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and I am celebrating my mother, a breast cancer survivor, and all of the men and women who've battled this terrible disease. My mom and I often get into a friendly debate over whether or not hormone replacement therapy or bioidentical HRT is safe to use, especially if one's had breast cancer or at risk for developing breast cancer. I am always very transparent about my menopausal journey, and I take estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone. While my mother accepts my choices, she certainly doesn't agree with them. And therein lies the debate. My mother was diagnosed with breast cancer in the 1990s, just as the Women's Health Initiative was underway. In 1991, the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute began the largest clinical trial in the U.S. to better understand how these diseases, breast cancer, heart disease, stroke, and blood clots, affected postmenopausal women. More than 160,000 women ages 50 to 79 participated in this 15-year-long study. In 2002, results found that postmenopausal women taking estrogen and progestin, HRT, had an increased risk for all of the diseases I listed above. As a result of these findings, millions of women stopped taking hormones, many doctors stopped prescribing these hormones, and the study was halted prematurely. Years later, it was discovered that the study wasn't all that kosher. There were many flaws. By the time the flaws were discovered, the damage had already been done. Women who would have been protected against these diseases were now suffering from menopausal symptoms, a staggering increase in heart disease, which is the number one killer for women post-menopause, hip fractures. And in one study I read, there were an estimated 43,000 hip fractures reported each year after the study was halted. And those women who are now much too old to begin thinking about HRT like my mother, well, where would they be today? Most of my friends are not on HRT and want to age naturally, and that's fine. The decision is ultimately theirs. They fear hormones and are either misinformed, misguided by their doctor, or haven't even had the opportunity to talk to their doctor about their options. Meanwhile, they experience night sweats, brain fog, loss of lean muscle mass, increased body fat, low to no libido, have, low, have hair loss, and don't sleep. At the end of the day, we all get to make that decision, like I said, but let's just make that choice based on education, knowledge, and the current medical science. To help break all of this confusing information down for us, I have invited a very special guest onto today's episode. Dr. Jen Simmons was a breast cancer surgeon and a leader in cancer care in Philadelphia. After spending 17 years as Philly's top breast surgeon, her own illness led her to discover functional medicine. And in 2019, she left her esteemed surgical position for a new life as a functional medicine doctor and founded Real Health MD with the mission to help women with breast cancer truly heal. Dr. Jen believes that we all have the ability to live healthy and productive lives. Her integrative approach takes into account your physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, and social well-being. 
a short medical disclaimer before we dive in with Dr. Jen. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use this podcast as medical advice or for making any lifestyle changes to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. This entire disclaimer also applies to any of my guests on my podcast. So sit back, open your minds and enjoy the show. Hi, Dr. Jen. Welcome to the Health Trip Podcast. I am so glad to have you here today. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. And it is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. We are in October. It's official. And you are one of Philadelphia's ex-top breast cancer surgeons. And um, tell us how you went from that role to the role you are in now, which is having your own functional medicine practice. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it wasn't a preferred preferred route, right? So we all we all arrive at these different places along our journey, mostly because of personal experience. So um, it's not like I woke up one day and a light bulb went off in my head and I was like, oh my God, functional medicine is the way to do things. I actually had been in practice for about 15 years when I was diagnosed with Graves' disease. So here I am, a very traditionally trained physician, um, and I, I have really um, personal uh, motivations for being in the breast cancer space. I come from a breast cancer family. Um, the vast majority of women in my family, and I, I have a, a rather large family, have died of breast cancer at very young ages. And breast cancer was a huge part of my childhood. Like I always knew what breast cancer was and, and how old, how ugly it can be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had a first cousin who was a f- very famous singer songwriter. She wrote the greatest love of all, um, which was made famous by Whitney Houston. And, um, right. And it spent 14 weeks as the number one song on the charts. And my cousin would never know it because she died of metastatic Mm. breast cancer one month after Whitney released that song. And I was 16 years old at the time. So here I have this like rock star cousin who dies of breast cancer. I'm 16 and I do the only thing I know how to do to try to make her life have more meaning. And I become a physician and decide that I want to help women not have to have that same reality that my cousin and my family had. And so I become a breast surgeon. I'm the first fellowship trained breast surgeon in Philadelphia. And I'm doing awesome, um, really cutting edge things, things that no one else is doing. Uh, I'm at the top of my game. I'm running the cancer program for my hospital. Uh, and I'm a wife and I'm a mother and I'm a stepmother and I'm a philanthropist and I'm an athlete. And I have like all these balls in the air and I have energy to boot and think that I can do anything. And I go from being like super high performing one day to the next day, I can't walk across the room without being short of breath. And I go to see my friend who is a physician and my colleague and someone that I worked with frequently. And he's telling me that I need to have my thyroid removed 
I need to have chemotherapy. I need to have radiation. I need to be on lifelong thyroid replacement. And I feel like I'm in Charlie Brown's teacher's office, right? Womp, 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 womp. And so I go on this. I, I, I inherently knew that those things were not for me. Even though these were things that I was recommending to people all day, every, every day, without hesitation, without reservation. But when these words are coming at you, I just somehow instinctively knew that that was not the answer for me. Mm-hmm. And so I went on a quest, a journey to figure out how to heal myself. And it had nothing to do with my patients at that point. Because, you know, when you, when you don't know, you can't see. And I was blinded by traditional medicine. And I'm not throwing traditional medicine under the bus. It serves a, a very important needed purpose. But unfortunately, we are using an acute care model to manage a society that is plagued with chronic disease. Yep. And breast cancer is one of them. And so as I started to study, and first I started at the Institute for Integrative Nutrition, because as a traditionally trained doctor, we get about 15 hours worth of education around nutrition. Mm-hmm. And you know we learn about things that don't even exist anymore, like scurvy and rickets and those kinds of things. Um, but we really don't learn anything about health optimization or the importance of nutrition in your health. And so I started the Institute for Integrative Nutrition, and one of the first speakers was a man named Mark Hyman. Mm -hmm. So Mark Hyman gets on stage, and here I am, like, I'm a doctor for 20 years at this point. I'm not my snooty booty self, like, sitting there at at the Institute for Integrative Nutrition, like, what could I possibly have to learn? And he comes up on stage and he introduces himself as a functional medicine physician. And so I'm like, hey. There's no such thing. Like I've been a doctor for 20 years. If there was such thing as a functional medicine physician, I would know what that is. There's no such thing. What is this quack talking about? <laughs> but I checked my ego at the door because I knew that I was there for a reason. Mm-hmm. And within five minutes of this man speaking, like my whole life made sense. I was like, oh my God, this mm-hmm. is why I got sick. So that I would be here in this room on this day to hear this man talk, because this is the answer. Because it's not about masking of the symptoms. It's not about throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Like, you know, my thyroid didn't misbehave because it's bad. My thyroid misbehaved because I wasn't giving my body what it needs. Mm -hmm. It was having too much of what it doesn't need and not enough of what it needs. And so I, of course, then enrolled in the Institute for Functional Medicine. So at one time, I'm a full-time doctor, full-time at IIN, full-time at IF, IFM, adding you know more to my stress load, which I really didn't need. Mm-hmm. Um, and it took a while, but I did reverse my own disease. And at the same time, all along this process, I had to ask myself, like, was being a surgeon really helping people? Or was I really just a part of the problem? Because, Mm. you know, if it's bad, we cut it out. Well, when you, when you do that, you don't really intervene in why that happened in the first place. 
So in the, in the medical community, especially where cancer is concerned, all the focus is on the tumor, mm. but the tumor isn't the problem. The tumor is the symptom of the problem. Right. So as I, as I studied and learned and realized all of this, I really didn't feel comfortable staying in that surgeon role, even though I had lots of access to people and I knew I could, I could help those people change their lives. I learned one day the hard way that that's not really what those people were coming to me for, right? These weren't the people that necessarily wanted to take control of their lives. Some of them were, but the vast majority, you know, they're, they're pretty ingrained into that traditional medical system. If you have a tumor, you cut it out and you don't change anything else because you don't need to change anything else because you got rid of the problem, right? If the tumor is the problem and you get rid of the problem, you no longer have the problem. Right. And no one talks to these women about the fact that most women who get breast cancer don't die of breast cancer. Most women who get breast cancer die of heart disease. And that's because it's the same thing that's at the root, right? It's the same inflammation that's driving that breast cancer process that even if you remove the tumor, but don't intervene in the process, then they're just going on to manifest some other thing that is caused by that chronic inflammation. Mm. And so I just didn't feel comfortable being a part of that anymore. And I knew that I wanted to be able to help so many more people than just the one-on-one interaction that you're forced in when you're a surgeon. Right. But uh, the real turning point for me was a day that I saw a 19-year-old woman who I would like to say that she walked into my office, but she didn't. She came into my office in a wheelchair. My office was about, about 30 feet from the elevator and she couldn't even walk 30 feet. She had been diagnosed earlier that year with MS and was already in a wheelchair for prolonged distances, which 30 feet was a prolonged distance from her for her. And I had just read Terry Wall's book. Are you familiar with Terry Wall's? Yeah, I just read Terry Wall's book, The Wall's Protocol. And for those listeners that don't know who Terry Walls is, she's a physician who was basically at the end of the MS spectrum. She was in a zero gravity wheelchair, like really, really, really had lost almost all of her function and realized that diet could make a tremendous difference. She didn't abandon the traditional MS treatments but she added in some significant dietary changes. And now today lectures all over the world, Mm -hmm. um, you know, rides her bike 20 miles every day, like Mm -hmm. the picture of health from someone who was like basically permanently disabled as far as everyone was concerned. Um, So I'm so excited because this, this young woman with MS walks into my office And she's in a wheelchair and I really know that I can help her, but she's coming to me because she has a breast mass. And so I start to talk to her about Terry walls and, you know, all these changes that she can make to really reverse the process that's happening for her. 
And she looks at me and she said, are are you going to do my biopsy or not? (laughs) And I was like, oh, I get it. Like there are just some people, right? they they, they just want the surgery or they want the pill or, you know, like they've not bought in and they don't want to really own their health. And you know what? That's okay. That's okay. It's just not the people that I want to work with. I want to work with people that are as excited about owning their health as I am. Well, that just speaks volumes about how we have grown up to think that going to a conventional doctor is like going to see God. They have all of the answers. They have the protocol set in place. When you have A, you do B. When you have D, you do E, right? Yeah. And, you know, I know many people in my family who are like that. I have many friends who are like that. And, you know, when it comes to women and their fear of getting breast cancer and having that conversation about hormone replacement therapy, I get the same, the same response, like, no, 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 we're not going down that woo-woo path. We're going to stay on the conventional medical path. And this is what it says about that. And that's why we're here today. And that's why I'm so excited to share you with my community, because there is so much misinformation out there and confusing information out there about hormone replacement therapy, about breast cancer. And, and so I wanted to start off by talking about the Women's Health Initiative, just just in a nugget, because we have so much great information to unpack with you. But just in a nugget, could you please share what the WHI was, where it went wrong, and how it set the tone for all of these years that we're hopefully trying to change now? Yeah, yeah. So what the Women's Health Initiative was basically looking at is We know as women uh, go into menopause, it is associated with a number of um, uh, increased health events like cardiac events, like bone fractures, like dementia, those kinds of things. And so the premise was if we give these women hormone replacement and we prevent these things, besides the depression and hot flashes and and those things that you expect with Mm -hmm. menopause, can we also prevent premature fractures? Can we prevent cardiac disease? Can we prevent premature uh, dementia? And so they basically broke them out into three groups. One that was not going to get hormone replacement. That's the control group. And then the hormone replacement group was broken out into people who were getting a combined estrogen progesterone formulation. And those are people that had an intact uterus Mm -hmm. or people that were getting estrogen alone. And as they went down the study early on, they started to notice that there was an increase in breast cancers in the combination group. And they actually stopped the study early because of those increased breast cancers in the combination group of estrogen and progesterone. There are so many problems with this study. The first is that they used a synthetic combination 
of estrogen and progesterone. So you're giving the body a foreign and most likely toxic compound and seeing what it does. Well, of course, it's going to respond negatively. So that, that, was, that was the major, major problem with this study is that we, we told a whole generation of women that hormone replacement was dangerous based on the fact that we were giving them basically synthetic chemicals. Right. And the, the, other, proge the progesterone was actually called progestin. Progestin. Right. Right. Um, and so, and what we also didn't outwardly share is that there was no increase of uh, breast cancers in the estrogen alone group. And so we, we did throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? We, right. we took from that study that all hormone replacement is bad, even though not only did they not see an increase in breast cancer in the estrogen alone group, but they also in an age related fashion for women under 50, they actually saw some benefits. They saw some cardiovascular benefits. Um, and, and so we, we extrapolated from that study things that were false. And it was, it was just a very poorly designed study, which has carried on for 20 years. Right. And 20 years, women have suffered under the results of that very, very flawed study. Right. I mean, the only thing that study really had at its advantage was the numbers were big. And I think that that's why they saw the results they did and why they trusted it. But, but the fact is like, if you, if you start off with the wrong compound, you're never going to get to the right answer at the end. And, and it's just, it's so unfortunate that it happened in that way. And weren't the women's ages a problem as well? They were mostly testing women who were already 10 years post menopause. Right. So they, they did uh, divide for age. And I, I want to be clear that even when you use bioidentical hormones, mm -hmm. for, as, as you get older, the clot risk does go up. So even, even when you're using bioidentical, as you get, as you get further away from the, from the expected age of menopause, you do have to continue to be careful with hormone replacement because as the clot risk goes up, so does the heart risk, so does the stroke risk. Right. Um, but, but yes, the further away people were from menopause, the more, the more um, uh, replacement-related disease we saw. Right. And like you said, this, the results of this has scared and put the fear of God in so many women for the last 20 years. So now we're, you know, my mom is a breast cancer survivor and I can't help, but, and she is very much against hormone replacement therapy. And that is a big debate that we, we have. 
And I am on all three uh, bioidenticals. So the estrogen, estradiol, uh, progesterone, and testosterone. But I can't help but think if 20 years ago, this, the results didn't pivot women this way and doctors this way from now not prescribing these um, hormones to women, what other, how her life would be now? I mean, she's, she's healthy because she lives a very healthy lifestyle and we're going to talk about lifestyle, but uh, what about all those other women who are now in their seventies and eighties? But I, I think the issue is that even when you speak to most physicians today, even when you speak to most OBGYNs who are the people that deal mostly with, mm -hmm. with hormone replacement, there's, they're not educated on bioidenticals. Right. So they're, they're, they're saying what they're saying because based on the information that they have, which is the Women's Health Initiative, those combination pills of synthetic hormones are in fact dangerous. So what they're saying is true, but my, my question is, why, why are we not teaching and why isn't this a part of continuing medical education to educate, exactly. educate the providers on the appropriate way to help people through this transition and beyond? I work with a lot of middle-aged women like myself who are perimenopause or in menopause or postmenopause. And I can't tell you, it is such a high percent rate of women who have never even had the opportunity to have the discussion with their OBGYN. I sometimes get to see blood work from my clients. And even though they're getting the blood work from their OBGYN, the sex hormone panel is missing, like completely missing. Yeah, of course. It's, it's just unbelievable to me. And I, I, I unfortunately think largely that's the case because they don't know what to do with it. They don't yeah. know what to do with the information. Um, we, we, have, we have a big issue in our medical education process. Um, and it, need, it needs to change. The issue is that we're so heavily tied to the pharmaceutical industry and the pharmaceutical industry by and large is not interested in this. Right. Like they they don't they don't really promote this or want this. And for as long as they continue to fund and support medical schools and hospitals, education isn't going to change. Right. Um our system is very very broken. Very broken. It is. It is. I want to move on and talk about the three hormones. And I want to talk about why they're so important and what their job is in our body and why it's important that we consider taking them when we're in menopause or even in perimenopause, you can start some. Um, and I want you to just break that down because I have a lot of friends who refuse to take hormone replacement therapy but they don't feel good. You know, all of a sudden they, they, they still have the night sweats that are lingering. They don't have restorative sleep. They gain weight around their middle and they don't understand why, because their diet hasn't changed. 
they're, um, they have zero sex drive. And so their relationship is, if they're in one is now strained and they don't have that zest for life anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Their, their hair might be falling out. Their skin looks very weathered and they don't want to hear about hormones. So they don't want to hear about hormones for the, all the reasons that we've just spoke right. of, because the medical community has out and said hormone replacement should not be used except in very, very specific cases where people's quality of life is so diminished. And even in those cases, you should use as little as possible for the shortest mm-hmm. amount of time and get the right, right. That, right. That's the, that's the tagline. That's what yes. the traditional medical community says. And people, most people are completely bought into that traditional medical role model because they don't, you know, many people don't know that there's another option, right? right? This whole functional medicine movement is in its infancy. Yes. And people like me that are out there, you know, singing it from the rooftops are still kind of considered quacks. Absolutely. Um, thank you very much. Um, <laughs> but you know, what we've done as traditional medical doctors, what we've done is normalize all of these things that we don't know how to fix. Yeah. Right. So we've said that it's normal as you age to gain weight, to have poor sleep, to have brain fog, to, to be forgetful, to have no libido, to have hair changes, to have dry skin. Like we've said, what do you expect? You're getting right. older. Exactly. This is what happens, right? And so we we have completely reset our expectations of ourselves in accordance to that because we trust that if there was something that we could do, it would be offered to us, right? Right. And so we've gotten into this whole culture of accepting feeling like shit. (laughs) Like we think it's normal and it's anything, but, and, um, there are a lot of people out there trying to convince otherwise saying that, you know, you don't have to be tired and fat and exhausted and, and, you know, forgetful and, and have a low libido. Like Mm -hmm. you don't have to do that. Right. Um, I mean, we are living a lot longer, you know, we're not living till right. we're, you know, our thirties and forties, we're living to hopefully our eighties and our nineties and maybe even more than that. But most people are not living a lot better, right? They're living longer, but not better. Right. And that falls within the, the normalization and the expectation that's been created that, you know, we can help you live longer, but not better. And so most people have abandoned the idea that they can feel great their whole lives, right? Um, you know, what do you expect? I'm 40 or I'm, I, you know, like I, I, I have women coming to me and they're like, well, you know, I am 34. And I'm like, you have to be kidding me. You're a baby. Like someone <laughs> sold that to you. You are 34. Like I'm, I'm like, you're 34. Right. Right. Like you're on top of the world at 34. So all you need to know is that 
we literally have estrogen receptors everywhere in the body, everywhere. So if it weren't important, we wouldn't have that. That's a great point. We wouldn't have that. And so it's important if you want to continue to have your brain work, your brain's covered with estrogen receptors, it needs estrogen. If you want to have your heart work, it has estrogen receptors on it. It needs estrogen. So too of everywhere in our body. And yes, we do naturally stop making estrogen and progesterone and testosterone when our ovaries shut down in menopause. And for some people, they do that just fine. And for other people, it's torture. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't need to be. It doesn't need to be. Because we do have options now. We have bioidentical options, which can make you feel the way that you're supposed to feel. Get rid of that mindset that like, you're not supposed to feel good. You're not supposed to be healthy and energetic and vibrant and alert. You're not, you know, you, you got to get rid of that because it's just simply not true. It's just that most physicians don't know what to do. They don't know how to help you. Now, I don't think it's all about hormone replacement because there's a lot of things in our environment mm-hmm. that influence how we feel, how we look, how we function, how we sleep, all of that. And I do think it's always my go-to first, fix the gut, fix the environment, you know, do everything that you can. If you're still not there, I think hormone replacement, bioidentical hormone replacement is perfectly acceptable. And when's the acceptable time to start taking estrogen? Because I was always told you shouldn't take estrogen until you've actually entered into menopause. So that's 12 months and one day past your last period. Yeah. So I I actually started, but I actually started a little bit before because I was having other symptoms. And so that's when I think you start, right? You start when you, when, when you've lost that spark, when you've lost that feeling, that's Mm -hmm. when you start. But I, I think it's very important that you test and not guess. Right. I think that you need to know not only what your hormone levels are like, but you also need to know what your clearance pathways are like. And people don't need to personally understand it, but they need to be working with someone that does. Because I'm not going to put someone on hormone replacement that has lousy detoxification pathways because those people are going to get into trouble with the metabolites. And the metabolites can be toxic and cause problems. And so I I want to make sure that I'm doing everything to support detoxification pathways when I, when I give people hormone replacement, but, but again, you want to test and not guess. And so what's the best way to test for that? Do you, do you use the Dutch test? So I always use the Dutch test to test levels. And then especially in my breast cancer patients, I'm, I'm also doing genetic testing to see what their um, clearance enzymes look like. 
Yeah. And I use um, a genetic test as well, especially for my young women that I work with who are thinking about family planning, because I want them to be able to have the data, just collect as much data as possible to take to your functional medicine doctor so that there is a clear plan for you. It's a personalized plan for you. And so I love that, of course you would do that, but um, so important because there are three pathways that your estrogen can detox, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I, so- I, I never tested this for myself, but I, I've always talked to my daughter about doing it. And, um, I think it's just so important. Yeah, absolutely. And again, everyone sees the world through their own eyes. And yeah. in my eyes, the world has breast cancer, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm always hypersensitive to how are you detoxing your environment? And I'm, I'm always thinking about putting less toxin in, getting more toxin out. And so I, I wouldn't create, I wouldn't feed a funnel unless I knew that I could clear it. So if someone's estrogen is being detoxed or going down the wrong pathway, can you change that? And how do you change that? Yeah. So what we need to remember is not only is estrogen going down that the four hydroxy pathway, which is the, which is the pathway that creates these kind of free radical, um, uh, metabolites that can be damaging to cell walls and to DNA. So not only does estrogen go down that pathway, but everything that acts like estrogen goes down that pathway too. So we think about like antibiotics and fragrance and plastics and nonstick and, um, and, uh, like BPAs and BPBs and phthalates and all of these chemicals that are so ubiquitous in our environment. And they're all going down that 4-OH pathway and creating these toxic substances. And so before I would even think about giving someone hormone replacement, I really want to make sure that they have cleaned up their environment, that they're not using scented candles and not using perfumed mm-hmm. soaps and that kind of thing. And they're, and they're not using products that contain trigosan or, you know, any other antibiotic preparation that they're, that they're careful with their food and, you know, eating organic and pasture raised and grass fed and, and, and those kinds of things. Um, and what you are breathing in and what you are putting on your skin, just being mindful of all of that, because that is all being metabolized down that 4-OH pathway. And so really clearing out the funnel before I'm putting more stuff in. Mm. That's all really important information, especially if you're someone like myself, who's homozygous for the MTHFR genetic mutation. Yeah. And that's another, those are other genetic tests. I think, you know, it's really important to make sure that you really understand your genetic makeup and then all your epigenetics, what's turning on and what's turning off all of these genes that is going to make it either more of a more supportive environment or not. Yeah. So your genes are your genes and you can't, you can't change that. I mean, you can, you can help support them. You can't really change them, but the epigenetics is your environment 
And that we have a lot of control over. You will never avoid every chemical. It's impossible, right? No one is going to lead a toxin-free life, Mm -hmm. but we can all do our part and do a lot better. Yeah. Um, And even things that you don't consider, like stress is a toxin. Stress is creating inflammation and we're never going to lead a stress-free life. It's impossible right? because we don't live in a vacuum, but what you do with that stress, how you manage that stress, that is up to you. How you internalize it, the meaning you give to it, that's up to you. What are the best forms to use when taking estrogen? I, I think that that is completely individual. And, um, so, you know, some people do really well with topical, some people do okay with the oral preparations. Some people just do, um, uh, intervaginal. So it just depends. And sometimes it's a combination. Mm, Okay. And is vaginal dryness that a lot of us experience during menopause, is that correlated with low estrogen or is that a different hormone? No, I mean, it it is, it's definitely correlated with low estrogen and intravaginal estrogen is, works very, very well Mm -hmm. on helping to, um, replace, helping to kind of beef up that, that vaginal lining. And then there are other treatments that can help too. So there are, there are lasers that can actually, uh, stimulate repair and replenishment of the vaginal lining. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Let's move on to progesterone. And you talked a little bit about that in the WHI study and how there was that combi, um, that was used and that was progestin. Progestin. I I really want to talk about the differences between wh- or why progesterone should be the preferred use over progestin, because I do know some women are still prescribed progestin. Yeah. I don't know why they're still prescribed progestin. Um, that co- the combi patch. Yeah. Yeah. I, there's really like no reason for it. Um, it, that is an isolate from, um, pregnant horse urine. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I kind of follow that guideline that like, if you know where it's from and you wouldn't, you wouldn't use it, you shouldn't use it. Right. Right. (laughs) Like that. I think that, I think that's a pretty good rule of thumb. I grew up riding horses for about 15 years. And I can tell you that, um, that is not something I would use. Right. Right. (laughs) Um, and so When we think about like what the hormones do, like just in an overarching sense, estrogen is like the um, stimulatory growth hormone. And so estrogen's like the go, progesterone's like the stop. It's the Mm -hmm. calm. It's the, it's the uh, allowing to shut down, to uh, soothe that kind of thing. And so it's really important to get that balance because while you want the energy and excitement and build and grow, you can't be on all the time. When you're on all the time, it causes problems, right? So you need the off button as the the balance. And that's where the balance comes in. Right. They do talk about an estrogen and progesterone ratio and that you want to make sure you're working with someone who clearly understands what that is. Yeah. 
And so, and progesterone also helps us sleep at night, which is it why does. a lot of women start that's taking what, it. That's what the off button is. That's where the off button comes in. Um, and as people lose sleep, this can really be helpful. But again, I don't want it to replace good sleep make, hygiene. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Like you right. should be avoiding blue light at night and mm -hmm. watching the sunset and making sure that you cool your bedroom. Mm -hmm. And for people who are especially toxin sensitive, you should be opening your windows, recirculating the air, maybe have an air doctor in your bedroom to filter the air. So, you know, going to sleep at the same time every night, getting up mm -hmm. at the same time every day, like it doesn't replace good sleep hygiene, but right. for people who are doing all of that and still suffering, it's important to know that you don't need to suffer, right? It's not an ambient. <laughs> it's not an ambient. Exactly. That's for sure. True. It's not an ambient. And mm -hmm. so, and you know, it's important to say that all of those people that say like, I'm fine. I just take a pill and I sleep. Right. And they think they're sleeping, but all of those sleep aids disrupt the actual sleep cycles. Right. So while you may be asleep, you are not getting, you are not going into all the sleep cycles that you need in order mm -hmm. to repair because sleep is where the healing happens. Right. So if you're not sleeping, you're not detoxifying, you're not repairing, and you are eventually going to get into some trouble. So right. um, if you think that taking that pill is what is keeping you safe, you're not right. And we know that there's plenty of studies showing that lack of restorative sleep creates an environment where you are going to be at higher risk for chronic inflammation, breast cancer, obesity, type two diabetes, hypertension, high blood, you know, all of it, right? Yep, it's, it's all of it's, it. It's never a good thing. And then we touched base on cortisol and how your cortisol is then going to be out of whack and high and how that leads to other chronic, um, that is chronic well, inflammation. Initially it'll be high. Eventually it'll be low, but the bigger problem is that melatonin is our master antioxidant hormone right. and you're not making melatonin unless you're sleeping. Right. And so, um, cortisol being high in the short term, that that's a normal evolutionary response, right? Like right. we need to be able to run away from the saber tooth tiger. Um, but in modern days, we don't have saber tooth tigers. We have cell phones <laughs> and what we really <laughs> need to do is run away from our cell phone. Right. Right. Um, but we never get to reset because we never lose our cell phone right. and we never lose the, the computer and that, you know, what, whatever else is like constantly stimulating us the blue light, the artificial light, the deadlines, the traffic, you know, all of these things are causing releases in cortisol. And instead of running it off, like you do when you run away from a tiger, mm -hmm. you're in your car in traffic. Yeah. Right. One, one very simple thing people can do is wake up early in the morning and get outside. Don't wear your sunglasses. Just get outside for 15 minutes. Yeah. If you don't, like, don't want to walk, just sit outside and have your coffee at that point. Yeah. My eye doctor was appalled that I told me that I tell people not to wear sunglasses. Right. Absolutely. And that is how we reset our circadian rhythm every day. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That is one of the best things that you can do is mm -hmm. to within five minutes of waking, get into natural light. 
And it's not so much for the vitamin D for your skin exposure. It's for your eyes Mm -hmm. so that your brain perceives the natural light. And that will start a normal hormone balance for your day. Um, I also like it if people can to get out midday and to watch the sunset, because these are all cues to our body of where the sun is right. All cues to our body to get in line with circadian rhythm and that, and that can really be influential on hormone balance. And at the same time, that time usually correlates with maybe after dinner, right? If you eat at a normal time and not nine o'clock at night, you can get outside, go for that walk, see the sunset. And at the same time, lower your um, blood glucose levels Mm -hmm. from your meal. So, so you're, you're getting, you know, by creating these new healthy habits, you're, you're hitting off lots of things off that list at one time. Absolutely. Let's move on to testosterone. Okay. So testosterone as um, I know you've been on Dr. Amy Horneman's um, podcast and I love, and she's been on mine and I've been on hers too. She's awesome. And she calls testosterone the get your shit done hormone, which I just love. I, I say, I tell it to all of my women um, clients, actually my male clients too, because men have test more, 10 times more testosterone than women, but we need testosterone. We and do. so I want, yeah, I want you to talk about testosterone because a so, lot of women don't really understand how it correlates to their health. Think about the woman who tries as hard as she can and she can't build any muscle mass, Mm -hmm. right? So in contrast, think about the women that you know that don't seem to be doing that much, but they have great muscle definition. That's the difference between having testosterone balance and not having testosterone balance. So, and as we age, preservation of muscle mass ends up being a huge factor in how you feel and survival, right? And it's not that easy to maintain muscle mass Mm -mm. as you age. It is so hard. It's I so have, hard. A, I have worked out with weights my entire life since I was 16. And I can tell you at age 54, um, I struggle during, during menopause, I have struggled maintaining my lean muscle mass and building more lean muscle mass. And I yeah. eat a ton of protein. So it is a very hard thing. It's to a do. very hard thing. And the, the, the factor, the X factor is testosterone. Mm-hmm. And without, without testosterone, not only are you not going to build muscle, but you're also going to deposit more fat because you're going to be in that estrogen dominant state. And so testosterone can really be a game changer for women who struggle with muscle mass, struggle with libido, Mm -hmm. struggle with that, that zest for life that you Mm -hmm. were describing Mm -hmm. that's testosterone. And so, and so it can really be a game changer for a lot of women. Now, again, you have to look at these pathways because giving more testosterone will result in having more estrogen because people are going to convert that testosterone to estrogen. Mm -hmm. So again, it's important to look first and make sure that they, they can clear that that they're in need of it. So looking at their testosterone and seeing, and seeing where they are, but it can be a game changer. 
And I think it's also really important to work with someone who's very good at working with testosterone because um, for myself, I have experienced hair loss for the last 25 years on and off, always shedding, and I've completely reversed it. But a lot of it um, in my most recent years was triggered by two high levels of testosterone that convert to DHT. So I think right. it's really important. So that's where knowing how you detoxify, that's where knowing those things comes in. Because if you're going to, if you're going to, if your five alpha activity, which is what you're talking about right now, Mm -hmm. if your five alpha activity is high, you're going to just convert that to DHT. Now there are things that you can do to block it, but you have to know to do that. Exactly. Exactly. And then there's different delivery forms of testosterone. There are pellets or injections. There's a topical cream. Um, I think there are troches or pills as well. Yeah. So it's yep. similar. It's similar to the estrogen delivery mm-hmm. methods. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it can be a real game changer for people, but I think you need to test first. Yep. You absolutely. need to see where someone is, what they're doing naturally and how their, how their conversions are working. And that can all be easily done with, with genetic testing. Yeah. So now I want to talk more specifically about women who have had breast cancer or maybe at high risk for breast cancer. Maybe they carry the the BRCA1 or BRCA2 gene. Um, Can they take hormones if they've had breast cancer or, or are at risk? And what does that look like? So... I usually try to figure out with women why they got breast cancer, right? And there, there's almost always a why. I'm not going to tell you 100% of the time, but there's almost always a why. And most of the women that I work with live their lives very differently after their diagnosis than they lived before their diagnosis. So putting them on hormone replacement before when they were eating in a way that was not health promoting for their body, living in a way that was not health promoting for their body, thinking in a way, moving in a way that was not health promoting for their body. You're not going to add estrogen replacement into that, into that person, but the people that they are afterwards, after we work together, most of the people that I work with are in the best health of their life after their breast cancer diagnosis. And so this is a completely different person. And now I know their detoxification pathways. I know their methylation SNPs. I know what's going to happen. And they've eliminated all those xenoestrogens, those synthetic estrogens. So they're a different person. And if in that, if in that person, they've they still don't feel the way that they expect to feel and we've optimized everything. That's a person who's a candidate for bioidenticals. For all of the bioidenticals or is there a limit? I I would say that I, I do adopt the do as little as possible and I probably wouldn't feed too far up the pathway, um, but but most people, once they've made all of these health adjustments, there's very few of them that really need that much support. 
some people need a little, but very few of them need that much that, that they've really, they've, they've become different people and they feel better than they ever felt in their lives. And again, most people are walking around feeling badly and having no idea that there's an alternative. Like they think it's normal to feel badly. Is there a type of breast cancer that you would say, absolutely not, you are not a candidate for any hormone replacement therapy or bioidenticals? So I think breast cancer is too generalized a term. And it really just depends on the individual Hmm. and looking at them and looking at their, um, their detoxification pathways, their methylation pathways, and, and seeing, um, how to optimize their function. Yeah. And, and it comes, you, you did mention the, the BRCA, um, mutation carrier. So we again have to realize that is such a fraction of the breast cancer population Mm. and not everyone who has a BRCA mutation. And for those of you that don't know what a BRCA mutation is, the BRCA gene is actually a protective gene and it's a DNA repair gene. And so, um, and so in those people, they are born with one defective copy. Something happens with the other copy at some point in their lives. And we all make cancer cells, everyone, young, old, everything mm-hmm. in between. And they exceed their genetic ability to be able to correct those gene mutations. Mm. So that's what's happening there. Now, not 100% of people who have a BRCA mutation get breast cancer. So there's something else in play there, right? And that's something else in play is the environment. And that's the part where we have our control. So there's no like absolute, if you have this, you cannot have this because it's all individual and it's so dependent on your environment and how much you can optimize that environment. And we all have a different capacity to deal with the environment, which is why some people get cancer at 30, other people get cancer at 90. Right. So the 90-year-old, although the 90-year-old did not grow up on the earth that you and I are living on, right? So the vast majority of their lives were lived in a far less toxic environment. I mean, we are swimming in a sea of toxins now. So, but- that, that person that gets the cancer later is just less sensitive to the toxins and hasn't been exposed to as much. Right. So you've talked a lot about toxins in the environment and given us some really good tips on how to mitigate that. Just clean up our home environment, do everything we can in our control. What about diet and alcohol? How does that impact our risk for breast cancer? Yeah. So there is no safe amount of alcohol for women. Don't shoot the messenger. Like I, I, I love me a cocktail too, but there's just no safe amount of alcohol for women. And, um, there is a linear correlation between the amount of alcohol one consumes and the development of breast cancer. And so for 
for any woman that is drinking alcohol on a regular basis, you, you just really ought to reconsider that. Um, diet, you know, we, the diet industry would like everyone to believe that there is one right diet, but the truth is that's simply not true. Like we are all bio-individual and what makes me work optimally is not what makes you work optimally and vice versa, right? right? And so the diet that's going to be the best is the diet that's best for you. And sometimes that takes some experimenting and seeing like what is making you function optimally. And so I work with people and we just, we kind of start off and build from the ground up and look at labs and look at microbiome testing and look at the indicators to see like, do you have hormone balance? Do you have thyroid hormone balance? And I think we have to think about thyroid in the context of all of this because it is our master metabolism hormone. Right. Um, and so just, you know, if everything's working right, that's probably the right diet for you, but that's going to be different for everyone. Do you think there's any caveats to that? Like nobody should be eating X, Y, and Z across well, the board? So I'm, I'm a little bit on the side of, I don't think anyone should be eating grains. What a grain. Uh, uh, grains are um, not not an essential nutrient for any of us. Like if not, if we never had another grain again, we would suffer no nutritional deficit. Right. So, um, I tend to get rid of things that don't serve anyone. So grains for me go out the door. Um, the other thing that goes out the door is sugar. Like how we still have an RDA amount of sugar is beyond me. Right. Right. Like it just simply does not serve anyone for anything. And if you never had another spoonful of sugar again, you would suffer no, no deficit. In fact, it would only improve your health. And so, um, so for me, grains are out, sugar's out processed foods of all kinds are out just because our bodies don't know what to do with them. Let me go back to sugar for um, a quick sec. Cause I have heard you speak on some other podcasts and, the, and the, they were amazing how you broke down nutrition and you talked about fruit and how fruit means it's a treat for you. Sort of like the way you think about candy. And can you explain why you feel that way and why you think excessive amounts of fruit in someone's diet could be harmful? Because I've always understood whether it was breast cancer or any other cancer that sugar feeds the cancer and you want to omit that, but does that, why does that include fruit? Right. So, um, <clears throat> First, we need to understand that um, what sugar does is it raises insulin uh, because what it, what it initially does, it will raise our glucose levels, which will raise insulin levels. Insulin is a growth hormone. And the thing that you don't want to give someone when they have cancer is growth hormone, right? And um, And 
the evolutionary purpose of fruit was to help us gain weight in the summer when food was plentiful so that we could survive the winter of scarcity. Mm-hmm. But guess what we don't have anymore? We don't have winter anymore. We don't have times of scarcity. We may, we may manufacture them, right? We may create them if you have mm-hmm. a fasting practice or something like that. But the truth is that we just don't have scarcity anymore. And our livers were not meant to eat fruit all year long. So fructose is actually known to be toxic to the liver. And even though it does have nutrients, and even though it is tied to fiber, it's still a very large fructose load on the liver, which we were not meant to do all year long. And so I think of fruit as candy. I think of fruit as a treat, and I use it seasonally and appropriately. So... If it's, if it's growing outside of your window or on the farm down the street from your house, great, eat it. If it's growing in a place where you evolutionarily came from and you can get it, but get it when it grows naturally, but all of this forced fruit all year long, mm-hmm. it's not good for you. And it just promotes growth when you don't want growth. The last thing you want in a cancer patient is to increase insulin-like growth factor, insulin levels. All of this contributes to tumor growth and tumor formation. Hmm. So I know it's, it's not, it's not a popular, <laughs> right? For sure. It's not a popular opinion, mm-hmm. but, um, the, there's very good evidence that, yeah. that even fruit promotes, um, uh, fat deposition and insulin and insulin-like growth factors. I'm so glad to hear you say that. And I'm hoping my community is walking away with that nugget for sure. Um, something I speak about all the time. So we're coming to a close. It's been an amazing conversation with you. And I always end by asking my guests, what are three things that you can leave my community with that they could start today? on their health journey to prevent breast cancer, or if they're at high risk for breast cancer, what are three things that they can leave with? Yeah. So uh, the first thing is filter your water, Mm -hmm. like filter your water. That's one of the best things that you can do to move your health forward. Um, Make sure that you're not drinking that filtered water out of plastic. Mm-hmm. So get rid of the plastic, deplasticize your life and deplasticize your environment, defragrance your environment, stop spending money on all of those things that don't serve you. Sorry about the dog barking. Um, have a daily movement routine. We know that exercise mm-hmm. is such a preventative measure, a cancer reversing measure. A exercise is so important in anyone's journey but it has to be joyful exercise. If it's torture, don't do it, right? right? Find some joyful exercise. So daily movement, no exercise in couch potatoes, try to be active throughout the day and get your sleep under control. Mm -hmm. Prioritize sleep, have great sleep hygiene. All of this will serve you so well because sleep is when the healing happens. 
Those are three amazing tips. Thank you, Dr. Jen. Where can people find you? Uh, go to Real Health MD. But uh, this month, I'm so excited that I have my Beyond the Cancer Summit. So if you just go to beyondthecancer.com, you'll listen to 40 experts on prevention of breast cancer and, and how to really promote your health anywhere along the breast cancer journey. All the things that you can do at home, outside of a doctor's office to really promote your health. Oh, I love that. I will put all of this information into the show notes. It was so lovely to meet you and what an amazing conversation you just took us on. And I know that everyone's going to be walking away with a notebook filled with notes. Awesome. So, so thank awesome. you so much again. Yep. Of course. Thank you for joining me. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Lifestyle changes can be hard and overwhelming to make. By building your support team of functional medicine doctors, therapists, and health coaches, you can reach your optimal health goals. Be sure to check out my other podcasts. Until we meet again, stay healthy.